Matt here. Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. Jordan Miller and I recently spoke with Ed Simon about an article he had published on Aeon, or Eon, we're not sure how to say that, the title of which was The New Paganism, or A New Paganism, I can't remember exactly. Um, but I thought it was a really interesting piece and worth talking about. So what you'll hear in this episode is uh, a result of that. Thanks to Ed and Jordan for being great conversation partners. Um, I do really appreciate it. Uh, and I appreciate you for uh, checking it out. And yeah, hope you enjoy the conversation. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. If you head over there, there's a big button where you can click on it and send us a, a voice message. Uh, if you do that, there's a good likelihood we'll use that as part of a, an upcoming episode. So, yeah, looking forward to hearing from you. All right, here is Ed Simon. Peace. It's really great to have you back so soon. And um, yeah, by the way, I saw there's going to be a third installment in that. Well, I don't know. What kind of trilogy are you going to call it? I don't, I don't know. You got to give it a name. I do. Yeah, it was never intended to be one. It just sort of I kept on pitching stuff and they kept on taking it. So uh, we uh, we got it out to three with this, but I don't know what we'll call it. The, the Sin and Salvation series or something. Oh, uh, that, that won't sell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or or you know a bunch of like evangelical bookstores will pick it up and i know be unpleasantly say, surprised it's not a it's not a trilogy it's a trinity right exactly well i'm not <laughs> i'm gonna be curious to see how the uh angel book does i feel like there's gonna be a lot of uh angry first communion present buyers for this one but yeah but you know it's gonna make up for it is the um like the new age community it'll be in all those stores i'm pretty yeah, sure yeah i love my new age readers they're my they're my friendliest readers yeah well maybe that kind of is a, something of a segue into uh what we're going to talk about so you wrote this piece pretty recently i guess called a new paganism and it where, where did it appear in aeon right yes yeah aeon or eon i'm not sure actually how to pronounce that. i struggle with that too i'm not yeah. sure which which one is right but i thought it was really fascinating it's not a very long piece but i thought it was very rich and so I, yeah, I just figured we'd have a conversation about it. And I got the sense that Jordan was interested in it as well. And I also want him to keep us, keep us honest. Cause I actually think there is a, aside from what you write in here explicitly, I think there's also a conversation to be had about how this is situated within a broader theological context, perhaps uh, that sort of thing. Jordan, you have any initial remarks? Uh, I, I don't know about initial remarks. I've got kind of three general areas I'm interested in exploring. All right. So first question, Ed, how is your new paganism not just spiritual, but not religious? That's a really, really good question. And I always, I feel like the the spiritual, but not religious terminology is something that I would have like applied to myself when I was like 16 or something, but now I uh, would vehemently run away from it. And and somebody more recently has described me as religious, but not spiritual. And I like that. I'll, I'll take that, which uh, obviously not the same thing at all. That is a very pertinent 
critique, I think, and it's something that needs to be addressed and talked about whenever you're kind of assembling um, your own collection of kind of uh, stuff that speaks to you in, in, in a sense of the numinous or something, right? Is you don't want it to be too wooly. You don't want it to be too feel good. I think that what I would say is, is maybe the biggest difference is spiritual but not religious to me seems to be so much less about whatever your beliefs may or may not be or the questions that you may or may not think are important so much as how you organize your approach to that stuff. And I see the kind of spiritual but not religious stuff as very much congruent with like the neoliberal order as it is right now, right? I mean, spiritual but not religious, it's like a marketing scheme more than it is a, a theology. So I, whatever individual people may or may not think about certain things uh, as regards these kinds of ultimate questions, I think the designation of spiritual but not religious is that kind of like, uh, and I don't want to hit new age because I know it means something different from how I'm using it here, but that kind of like new agey, like Gwyneth Paltrow goop, Oprah kind of approach to those sorts of questions. And I view that as like a very kind of um, shallow, superficial engagement with stuff that is at the end of the day, ultimately kind of like feel good. And I don't necessarily think that, uh, I don't see a new paganism as being initially particularly feel good necessarily, right? And that's why in the essay, I kind of talk about the like, you know, I will be dead and you'll be dead and civilization will collapse and all of that's going to be gone. You know, none of that is um, is like the power or something or the secret or whatever. The secret, right? That was the, yeah. the kind of um, mind over matter thing that was really popular. So I, I eschew all that kind of like Oprah-ish, Dr. Phil-ish kind of stuff uh, that might come in there. You know, part of the approach that I was at least riffing on in, in the essay was something that might ultimately be kind of... Um, if not feel good, maybe hopefully offer a type of cracked consolation or a type of minimal wisdom or whatever. But I, I don't see it as taking part in that kind of like, or hopefully not that type of a cafeteria approach of like synchristically grabbing whatever you want from a variety of different traditions and kind of like hodgepodge putting together uh, your own religion that's basically like, you know, vibes more than anything. So that's that's sort of how I see it. But then you know, if people who are spiritual but not religious find something of wisdom in their wanderings, I'm not here to like, you know, shit on that necessarily. But that's why I would, uh, that's where I would draw the distinction, I think. Just in the spirit of the question, I guess I kind of read this as a, a spirituality in search of a religion, just based on where you land talking about, you know, you're, you're speaking in terms of liturgy, even if it is a personal liturgy, there still is something of a constructive uh, theological project that you have going on. So, and and then of course you get into the weeds of you know what do you mean spiritual? What do you mean religious? I'm not sure how helpful that is. It's interesting because some of that and and this is kind of unique to how Aeon does uh, their own process of working with writers. So you work very closely with an editor who is not just sort of doing the the copy editing stuff, and they actually list the editors uh, with a byline, which I think is kind of cool. I, I appreciate that. And Sam Dresser, who is my editor, he's been my editor in all the pieces I've ever written for Aeon, uh, is a very engaged editor, and like I think like he's improved my own thinking in a lot of ways. But he does take things sometimes in a direction that I wouldn't have necessarily gone originally. Which is not to say that he's he's wrong or anything with that, but he was interested. Uh, in kind of the the personal liturgy of things. And I think part of what he wanted to do was to make sure that I didn't come in and just sort of go like, 
here's the new Bible I came up with composed of like Carl Sagan and Annie Dillard or something, right? <laughs> to make it clear that it was uh, it was a pretty subjective sort of project. It's not all writing that I do, but a lot of the writing I do, I do um, tend to avoid stuff that's overly personal just because I don't always think it's necessarily interesting. Like, I don't know that people care what like a 40 year old white guy uh, is moved by per se. Uh, but I also get that staking out who you are and, and where you're coming from is a way of keeping you honest as well. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think that the readings that I offer are necessarily helpful to anyone other than me or somebody who is maybe very much like me. I wasn't trying to come up with a new canon or something per se, even though it kind of seems like I, I am, so much as I was kind of uh, raising the question as broadly as I possibly could of what would that canon look like if one were to do it? Here's what I think I would maybe put in mine, but you know, what perhaps would you put in yours kind of thing, I think. With that in mind, why why paganism and not new transcendentalism? Mm. I think it's because I like how loaded the term pagan is more than anything, to put it bluntly. You know, transcendentalism, it's very waspy, right? And I'm not and yeah. I, I I love Thoreau and Emerson in so much as one is capable of loving them, like I, I do. Uh, but they are very different i think from where most of us are coming from they're very different certainly from where i'm coming from so like i can read you know the divinity school address or whatever and, and place it in a in a certain cultural context and be moved by certain parts of it but you know i'm not a harvard divinity professor who's upset at like you know mainline unitarians it's just it's something that has nothing to do with my own experience in that way whereas i think because from my own kind of uh, very culturally Catholic background. I like that type of ritualized, sacramental, earthy, very Catholic in a, in a cultural sense, if not a theological one. Paganism, I guess, for lack of a better term, not to sound too Protestant, but I don't, I don't use it as a, as a criticism at all. And I like kind of yoking that to the more intellectual stuff. And I think one of the things I really wanted to emphasize, and especially with that choice of the word paganism, is that this is something that is very embodied and very aware of our existence as kind of finite physical beings that are capable of, you know, ecstasy and pain and everything else that bodies experience, and not just, um, you know, people in a, in a seminar in like 19th mm -hmm. century Boston or something. Yeah. As you said before, you begin in a, a darker place. The beginning of this is like like a kind of cosmic pessimism or something. And that's a view I held for a long time. Um, so it's I think it's pretty easy to, for maybe some people to understand. But I think it's possible to break free of that in, in different ways. And I think that that kind of, I don't want to call it apocalyptic, mainly because I want to reserve that for, you know, something specific. But that kind of pessimism, I, I think it's only really possible as long as you insist on holding on to the idea that we are these compartmentalized entities, you know, spatially, temporally. And so what, even while you're talking about how we're finite, there is a sort of gesture towards the infinite in this that I think is uh, kind of interesting. And I think there's value in that. And I think there's value in, in reintroducing, frankly, a grand narrative that is in accord with like what we know from science and this kind of return to a nature worship. I used to kind of like think about, oh, people who worship the sun, how silly that was. And that, I've kind of come around like, well, at least I can see the sun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I think this return to paganism is not a naive return or it doesn't have to be necessarily. So in the in the piece, if people haven't read it, you know, I kind of set up 
Walt Whitman and Bertrand Russell as kind of um, two different approaches towards the same acknowledgement of the world and the condition of the world, right? And so one of the things that's always interesting to me is like Russell, who has this uh, reputation as kind of you know steadfast uh, atheist, I guess, or or I guess technical agnostic, but effective atheist is probably how he would put it. Um, but he writes very movingly about being like haunted by the idea of the heat death of the universe where kind of like entropy dissipates everything out and meaning kind of just, you know, fades away as the universe like coldly and slowly dies for an eternity. Uh, and I always thought his speaking honestly about what was so disturbing about that was kind of refreshing from a thinker who can veer towards positivism quite a bit. Because if you take a look at the kind of I don't know if they're like new, new atheists of today or what iteration of atheism we're on right now, but the kind of like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson sort of pose where it's like, isn't it awesome that everything will like be destroyed in a big crunch or something? And it's like, I mean, no, I mean, the data is what the data is, I guess, but like you can be bummed out about that, right? And then I like the kind of like, you know, you've got whatever the material conclusions are that, you know, empirical science derives. And then your approach to that is a choice. Uh, or if not a choice, a disposition at the very least. So you've got the mm. kind of like very understandable, I think, pessimistic view of a Russell. You have maybe the kind of like uninterrogated naivety of a Neil deGrasse Tyson or a Richard Dawkins or whoever. And then what I find really fulfilling is that kind of Whitman-esque approach to that. Because I think this goes back to a conversation I had with a friend of mine in grad school where we were like, Whitman's the only one who like ever dealt with in the West who dealt with his shit about like the end of the universe, right? He kind of joyfully and zestfully embraced this infinite, eternal, very hard to understand cosmos where we are very, very small, but we're also part of that. And he took this sort of like transcendent joy and ecstasy from that. So I, I always find Whitman to be fascinating because he obviously was trying to write a new sort of American scripture. He was strongly influenced by the transcendentalist, came out of this kind of Quaker background, but had no organized religion himself, was like, you know, a New Englander generations back, but lived in, in New York and then uh, Philadelphia and kind of like cast off the last of the bits of puritanism that clung i think to like the emersonian project so i always like when i read leaves of grass i take this profound type of fulfillment or meaning from that that i feel is also very much congruent with what we know about the universe right in terms of what the ultimate result of things might be geologically cosmologically whatever so when you talk about like finding a new meta-narrative i always have this kind of like fantasy of like a like a Whitman-esque religion or something. I don't think it's coming, but I like the idea of that. I take a lot of meaning from that. So I, I guess where I'm hung up um, is the meaning of the word pagan. Mm -hmm. So I, I appreciated the kind of genealogical bit you did in there, talking about the way basically Christianity creates paganism mm -hmm. um, historically. And But I'm thinking about like the colonial project mm -hmm. and the way paganism is weaponized against people who are being conquered, right? Sure, sure. Um, and the 20th century movements of people resisting that project or trying to decolonize that project and reclaiming paganism as, mm -hmm. as part of that. You keep citing a whole bunch of really well-educated New England bred white guys. Mm -hmm. How are you not- And Annie Dillard. <laughs> and, and Annie Dillard. Yeah. How are you not just kind of reproducing that same dynamic? Well, I mean, in terms of the people who I cite as being ones to kind of reaffirm that dynamic or not, because I think that's an important distinction to, I, to draw. Too. So, I, I mean, I think of I think of 
paganism as a political term. Yeah, yeah. And then in particular, like very specific indigenous traditions. I think that one of the things that I want to make clear, and, and I and I do, I think, in the article, is that it's such a broad umbrella term, right? I mean, it's like the sort of thing where if you're including like um, Lapland shamans and like, you know, indigenous American religious beliefs and uh, like classical Neoplatonism all under one umbrella, it's less useful than 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 not, right, in that sort of sense. I mean, it is, you're right. Like I'm thinking about early American texts. They do refer to the indigenous as, as pagans. I always think well, of it but, as- a, But it, I'm sorry, just real quick. Like, yeah. and not just that, but it's it's the way contemporary, the contemporary religious right uses the term. Oh, oh. Right, as well, like there, yeah. there's a continuation there that, that comes right up to the present day. For sure, but it's also used by like neo-pagans as a reclaimed term. So I think it's there's a certain amount of like, I don't care that the right wing uses it as a derogatory term. I mean, it doesn't, they use- socialist is a derogatory term we don't stop calling ourselves socialists because they they do right like i think the bigger criticism than the the colonial bit of it because the term pagan does predate contemporary colonialism contemporary capitalism in a way that other fraught terms don't i mean it's it's been fraught for a very long time I and mean, we have 2000 years of it being fraught not just 500 years or 150 years or whatever of it being fraught uh, I think that, like, methodologically, the, the critique that I would think is more damning would just be that it's not that useful of a phrase, more than it's potentially um, used by some people in a, in a less than savory kind of way. But I think, if anything, zestfully reclaiming it, which is something that's been going on for 150 years, right? I mean, ever since you've had various neo-pagan movements, I think that that's it's kind of a way of putting your thumb in the eye of the Christian right uh, a little bit with that, right? I mean, I think that that, if anything, recommends the use of the term uh, a little bit more. Yeah, I feel like those kinds of polemics really just fall flat today. It's like, oh, paganism. Yeah, you're right. Moving yeah. On. Yeah, problems aside, you know, invoking this contrast between Christianity and paganism, we can talk about the history of that if we want. But even if it's not this strict division, at least it's a way of getting us talking about things that are them thematically true of you know, both paganism, uh, problematic, of course, but also potentially productive way of maybe identifying some common features in paganism that we want and like and want to potentially put to use. I think that one of the things too is like I, and at the outset, I think it's important to say too that like the history that I offer, like I try to be as clear as I can that it is, uh, it's not really a history so much, right? Like it's, it's if when I give the kind of, distinction between Christianity is this and paganism is that and back and forth. Like all of that is very potted and constructed. It's a myth that's constructed for the purpose of the argument. So there's certainly very many abstract forms of pagan thought, quote unquote, and very physical embodied forms of, of Christian thought. Right. right. So uh, that I don't want, uh, I don't want it to seem like um, I'm not offering like, like the Margaret Murray hypothesis here or something. It's not like some sort of Victorian, uh, fantasy about like this wonderful past that was then corrupted and like I, I acknowledge everything's historically far more complicated but then within the confines of the myth I kind of construct thinking about what is useful about uh, a term like paganism you know the, one of the things that I was actually kind of happy about with the piece and whenever you like write something that's at a place like Ian where you know it's going to get read by more than maybe a, some things that I write are going to be read um, I was worried that I was going to piss off neo-pagans, if anything. I didn't want them to be like, who the hell is this guy who's coming in here? And they were actually very cool about it for the most part. And they had whatever 
uh, good observations or disagreements here or there, and there were disagreements amongst each other. But from what I saw in like different message boards and on, on Twitter and things and Facebook, um, it seemed like people were at least interested in this kind of idea of like, what would, what would a pagan theology look like? And what would it look like to people who aren't necessarily uh, neo-pagans, which I'm not, you know, I don't consider myself to be a neo-pagan. Although neo, neo-pagan curious, maybe. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how, I don't know, I guess more archaic or or pagan uh, anthropologies that are kind of more animist in nature are in some ways indistinguishable from a lot of like post-human thought. Um, there's an enchantment about paganism, yeah, which is a theme that you you talk about and maybe the aesthetics of it are important to some degree. But I think there is a reconfiguring of the God world man relationship these days that I think is really fascinating. And I, and I wonder if those are just helpful terms for kind of following that development in a way that can sort of track theological discussions with these kinds of more magical neo-pagan discussions. I definitely think that disenchantment, and that's another term that's like, of course, fraught and, and the history of it is complicated. Uh, but as a myth, I think it's like really helpful. I mean, there's like a grain of truth in it. I identify a sort of broad spiritual malaise, I think, in a lot of ways uh, that I think is directly connected to the fact that it certainly seems like we're in some sort of inflection point ecologically, politically, socially, culturally, economically, that things are coming to some kind of head and we don't know what the next iteration of this world is gonna gonna look like uh, and whether it's gonna be good or bad, but like, you know, indications are, are tough, obviously. Uh, and I think that it definitely feels like a disenchanted world. I don't know if I don't know if that begins with the Reformation or the Industrial Revolution or the Scientific Revolution or whatever, but it doesn't. It it seems pretty. It seems pretty disenchanted right now, and it certainly seems like there's a a severing of ourselves from the kind of natural world at the moment that the natural world is dying. And I think that kind of endowing the natural world. I don't know if it's a solution to anything. I don't, you know, I try to be very careful not to be like, like, let's start a new religion and give out Bibles and the corporations will start like divest themselves of fossil fuels or something. It'd be nice if that were true, but I don't think it necessarily is. Uh, but I do think it provides at least me personally a way of kind of acknowledging these these profound losses. And I think that a lot of times we don't talk enough about the kind of losses in the Anthropocene. I mean, we do in a, in a scientific sense, right? In an ecological sense, but just the sheer... Uh, oddity of how in our own relatively short lifespans things have obviously changed rapidly right uh, I mean if you go into some reddit communities where people talk about um, you know kind of signs of ecological collapse people talk about you know there's a lot less bugs I see now than I did 20 years ago just things like that and it's uh, it's obviously and disturbingly true and I think that kind of uh, maybe rethinking our relationship not that other people haven't been doing this, but just for me personally, yeah. thinking about nature in a, a particular way is uh, is important. Yeah. yeah, I'm somewhat skeptical of the disenchantment thesis mm. as well, o- only because I think that, um, uh, well, my suspicion is that people are just enchanted with other things now. It's just mm. kind of that they're unaware of, you know, if you stand online for, you know, 24 hours to get like a new phone or something like that, like yeah. you're, you're probably pretty enchanted with- For sure. No, I think if anything- what I would say is uh, I, I err more towards the belief that secularism has never been real. I think that there's always some religion, right? Global capitalism is the religion of today. It's very, it's a highly theological 
uh, belief system. I just think it's a damaging and wrong one, right? So I think that people are enchanted with, you know, the invisible hand, what the invisible hand gives and takes away, uh, and that we base our entire society and culture kind of around that faith, even if we don't recognize it as such. But I think you're absolutely right. People are, uh, you know, people standing in line for 24 hours to grab a new iPhone or Apple phone or whatever is a great example of a type of a, a type of enchantment that exists right now but i i totally reserve the right to be as curmudgeonly as possible and be like that's the wrong enchantment to have that's sort of my solution to it i think yeah no doubt well so that that kind of leads to my third area of interest so you you mentioned kind of briefly in the piece the the eco-fascist side Mm -hmm. of things but i was thinking about like bron taylor's dark green religion and Mm -hmm. kind of the the radical environmentalist left Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, whether we're talking about like Earth First or mm. um, even potentially something like Extinction Rebellion, mm-hmm. um, but movements that are responding to that species collapse that you were talking about, they're responding to climate change in an existential way, mm-hmm. often externally not using spiritual language, but internally being very spiritual yeah, yeah. Explicit about that. Um, and anyway, I just wondered what your your thoughts were on, you know, not not the... The, the neo-Nazi side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the, the the side that's actually trying to respond to capitalism. I think the one thing I always just keep in mind and like whenever I'm kind of in these like online communities to talk about these sorts of things uh, is left or right, worrying wherever it veers into something that is like anti-humanistic to the point that feels kind of nihilistic. And you definitely see it on the right. But there's a like some antinatalists, I think, can get there. You have some people that sound just Malthusian, even if they claim to be of the left. And I think that there's a certain amount of, like a gleeful joy at the potential of collapse because like humans suck and humans get what's coming to them. And I always feel, I'm like, yeah, but individual humans don't necessarily get what's coming to them. I mean, if we're talking about like, the problem is humanity is like an aggregate, you know, none of us are necessarily uh, individually responsible uh, in the way that like, you know, whoever the CEO of Exxon is or something. And I think that like by their nature, if they're, if they're, uh, you know, left-wing thinkers, they should avoid these things, but sometimes I will see language, and I'm not talking about any of the of the writers you mentioned necessarily, but just sort of, you know, anonymous commentators who uh, who one would hope know better, but don't necessarily uh, in that way. But um, the reason I put in the thing at the end about kind of eco-fascism is I really wanted to make the distinction clear that I was like, I am not talking about like Evola or something here. This is not, because I think it can so easily fall into that. And I think one of the risks too, with a kind of uh, neo-paganism that names names in terms of like ancient gods and things that people worship, mm-hmm. is like that can be on one hand, like super cool. And I think there's like probably like really fascinating and interesting people that are involved with those kinds of projects, but then it can also very easily turn into kind of a blood and soil fascism if one isn't care, uh, careful. I mean, what's more embodied and more natural than blood and soil, literally, right? So yeah. uh, I uh, I just very clearly wanted to say, like, that is not what I'm talking about in terms of this. Well, I mean, the, the other side of it, too, is the decolonial front line, mm-hmm. um, indigenous sovereignty movements, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether we're talking about what's going on in Western Canada right now or Standing Rock or, you know, whatever it is. And, and that's not so much the kind of philosophical or scientific vein in which you've situated yourself um but you know a, a very long ancient indigenous 
spirituality that's that's got a connection to the natural world uh, that is also resisting these forces of climate change and and uh, species. Yeah. I think it's interesting on what basis perhaps a lot of that resistance takes place when you have this sort of like expanded or alternate cosmological or metaphysical vision. What does that do for your sense of solidarity? What does that do for your sense of what counts as human within an animist framework? You know, I think these kinds of things are important. It's, it's again, it gets back to that question of relative usefulness of making a distinction between spiritual and religious. One of the things that you talk about that is paired with the idea of enchantment, disenchantment is the, I think somewhere in there you use the term, I think Weber uses it, the demagicization. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm even saying that right. It doesn't, it sound, is, it doesn't yeah. sound right, but I'm curious about what you think about that term. Um, for me personally, an embrace of magic as a part of a general project of re-enchantment is something I've pursued a little bit, partly, yeah. for, partly for existential reasons, but also because I think it's a better way to reintroduce Eros into our politics and relations. And I think that's something that's kind of crucial to the way that we, the way that we're eroticizing our politics and again, changes how we think about solidarity and, and how we're bonded and those kinds of things. That's, I mean, that's fantastic. And I, I entirely agree with you in terms of like an enthusiasm for that as a general project. And I, I love the term demagicization, I guess, and then the implied contrary of magicization, I guess. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things I like about the term magic so much, or maybe anything that could be generally subsumed under, under the occult, is it's a way of kind of reinvesting religion itself with a type of strangeness, which religion really needs to be interesting. Um, because a lot of sort of like bourgeois mainline establishment religion isn't necessarily, or if it is interesting, it's something that's like super rank and reactionary, right? So I, I, I'm fascinated by that sort of reintroduction of thinking about things in a magical way into our kind of discourse. I don't do it as much with nature as much. I mean, I write about ecology and the Anthropocene quite a bit, but like this is kind of the most overt I've ever connected those two interests in one essay, but I do write about it a lot in terms of like literary uh, theory and literary criticism, where people are like allergic to anything that has any kind of stench of the magical about it, right? Like I always thought the irony with high theory for being as like ostensibly anti-positivist as it's supposed to be, is that it replicates like very empirical scientific ways of, of thinking in a way that's almost a complete category mistake for talking about literature. Um, and I think that there are profound political ramifications for it as well. I mean, I have this like real soft spot for a lot of the sort of countercultural figures of the new left who uh, embraced a way of thinking that was perhaps magical or occult in some ways. I don't know if that's really an answer to your question. Sorry, just sort of a... I don't, I'm, not, I'm not even sure I had, had a question. Yeah. I, I'm just, I just find myself staring at Jordan's magical beard. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. And that'll be the last time I, I reference it, but it is wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned in here, there's a personal quality to this. Uh, in fact, there's a sort of soteriological comment somewhere in here towards the end, I think, where you say, I, I forget exactly what it is, but something along the lines of, you know, I'm just trying to save myself here. What do you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, I think that it was a uh... 
basically trying to differentiate myself from being like a crank, right? Like, I don't, I don't think there's any, uh, no one's starting a new religion that's going to save the world individually. Like that's uh, least of all me, I'm not doing that. Right. So I think that uh, a big thing with it, and it might be coming out of more and more and more of my kind of, um, dire anxiety about the state of the world today is it just amazes me how rarely anyone ever talks about the fact that we're clearly in the midst of some sort of collapse right now right I mean people do obviously but in mainline media like it's very rarely ever addressed well that's interesting because within that context you would think that it would be sort of a ripe environment for a reintroduction of that kind of religious language, but maybe there's just a, you know, just an allergy of to it in the culture. Like I could see having serious conversations about uh, what does it mean? What do, what do we mean by being saved today? You know what I yeah. mean? Or you mentioned Spinoza and holiness. Like that's a term I'm allergic to as a, as a Wesleyan, but um, I, I heard somebody speaking about using the word holiness and I was like, Oh, that, that seemed to have some kind of purchase uh, in a way that it it hadn't uh, for me previously, because um, it was wasn't being used to kind of in the in the tired and exhausted way that it, that it has been. But I guess that's just like a general question about the kind of language that we use in public. I kind of struggle with this. I'm I'm a fan of the separation of church and state, even if it's arbitrary. Mm. I always kind of want to check myself uh, and be critical about using that kind of language in public. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's interesting because it's like when you put the last 20 years or whatever in a type of context and you just sort of think about the disturbing nightmare scape that is like the news almost every single day on every single front. It feels to me like most people know that something is not right. And I think that it manifests itself in a variety of different ways. Uh, and it depends on people's uh, cultural and socioeconomic background and regional background and all sorts of things. But I think that there is a, you know, we are in an era of flagellants in many different ways, right? Like it feels like it feels like the bubonic plague some days uh, out there. Uh, and uh, it feels like the kind of culture machine or the media machine doesn't like quite look that square in the eyes. So I feel like there's a disjunct between what we all kind of like, know in our gut whether we experience it in different ways or not versus like what the parameters are of questions that can be asked and I, I think that like you'd think that we would have a particularly a particular type of intellectually rich discussion about what it means to be doing all of what we're doing in what could be like the collapse of civilization like right I mean but but we don't and I think it's I think it's maybe too enormous or too horrific of a thing to consider, or that like there's a certain amount of of denialism is probably I think what is the most common. I mean, it's become much more, you know, there's uh, stuff that I would say about climate change 10, 15 years ago, and I sounded like a nut, I think, to people. So I just didn't mm -hmm. talk about it much. But now when you have like, you know, an eight state tornado derecho that like goes through the middle of the country, it just it becomes much, you know, it there's an urgency harder. to it. Yeah, exactly. And and I uh, I don't know what that's going to have, uh, what the effect of that is going to be on people intellectually necessarily in the next 10, 20 years. But at a certain point, it's going to be impossible not to like see it and talk about it. Yeah. And that language of extremities, it's, it's hard to imagine that that kind of language is not going to in some way mirror the extreme weather. What? What? You're hungry? Yeah. Go in the kitchen and get yourself something. I'll be there in a minute. Anyway. 
Uh, we're going to see Guardians of the Galaxy three. Ooh, nice tonight. Yeah, nice. date night. Me and my bud. So, I, I mean, I'm I'm really struck by that that last topic you were describing, Ed, because I I am. It's so contrary to my own experience. Really, um, I mean, I, I'm the director of education for the Rhode Island Nursery and Landscape Association. Mm -hmm. I talk about climate change and drought and species collapse and the inability to feed communities and like many, many times every day. Uh, and everybody I interact with is having those conversations. Yeah. Um, and so the idea that like, there's this underlying um, sense that something is off, but nobody's talking about it. Like to me, everybody's talking about it. No, no. I, so maybe I misstated that. I think that like in our own interpersonal relationships, we're all talking about it with one another, right? Like I think people talk about it with friends and with family and with people at the bar or whatever. And maybe like, you know, cable news is the worst example or something, but there's like a weird, like, uh, I mean, they, they obviously relish the kind of spectacle of some of the things that are going on, but the kind of like our political mainstream seems to they seem to dance around it, I guess. I, I think that like those with the soapbox tend not to like admit it quite as much, maybe is what I'm trying to say. I think that's fair. I mean, yeah. po politicians and the captains of industry For are sure. in, in their own ways benefiting from the situation. Oh, so it, absolutely. It's For in sure. their interest not to bring it up. For sure. For sure. I, I just, it feels like the difference between what's the, the term is hypernormalization, right? From um, in the last days of the Soviet Union, where everybody knew that like, you know, if you're waiting in line for, for bread from five blocks and it's not there when you get there, that like Pravda is like spinning bullshit about how great it is to live in, in the Soviet utopia. We're kind of like in late capitalist hyper normalization right now, obviously, right? Like there's a certain amount of like you, me, whoever on the street, like we know that stuff is, is like fucked in like a deep sort of way. Um, but you don't hear that on on the on the news or you have or the wrong people are blamed for it right yeah. i mean i think that i think if anything like the the right wing has really captured the zeitgeist of there being something uh wrong in the world but then they have like channeled it into absolute right bullshit and i'm not saying that to like exonerate people that, that like fall for things or whatever like i think it's a totally different argument to, to hash out but like you know I, i'll give you an example of um a conversation i had is i was speaking through zoom to this like dc think tank i can't remember the name of it but like a steadfastly very centrist beltway dc think tank and it was about the uh, book about religious journalism that costa cabrera and i uh co-edited and this is like two years ago it's it's like something that like francis fukuyama is involved with right it's like one of those sorts of places so everyone you know they were very smart they were very nice they're very polite and they listened to us talk and they had good questions uh, and one of the questions that we got from somebody is he said, well, you're talking about this being sort of an apocalyptic time period. And, you know, we just came out of, of uh, or were in the midst at the time of the coronavirus pandemic. And he said, you know, it's interesting. You look at uh, the Black Death. We had all these kind of millennial and apocalyptic groups that emerged. And he's like, why don't we see that now? And I was flabbergasted because I said, you think we don't see that now? I was like, what do you think? like QAnon is, you know, I mean, it's in, or whatever. I mean, it's in some way connected uh, in like a, a deep emotional intrinsic kind of way with people's sense that the world is not going well. Uh, and then it manifests itself in a completely awful sort of way, but it seems completely connected to that. And they were, uh, 
they laughed when I said it. And I was like, no, like, like, what is it? 15% of Americans or something adhere to some aspect of like QAnon, Pizzagate type conspiracy thinking. And that, and they just, they didn't believe me at first with it. And then they seemed like really worried after I talked about it for a bit. And I think that this was, I want to say this was pre-January 6th, but I could be wrong about that. Uh, it, it was just, it was interesting to me because like I never really bought that like the people in the Beltway are so out of it about the rest of the country until that particular moment when I was like, oh my God, there's like all these like lanyards at these kind of like centrist think tanks at the Brookings Institute or whatever, who like literally don't get it. And I think that, uh, I don't know why I went on that tangent, but it was an interesting thing when I kind of um, was, was more aware, I think, of of how unaware some folks who are ensconced are as to how bad things actually are and like the the danger for all of us of not addressing that in in certain ways to a large degree it's a sort of symptom of not addressing the underlying oh yeah issues so i mean but i don't know i don't know what you're gonna do about that yeah no no completely (laughs) totally agree with you on that um but it's interesting i you know i work in a corporate space and i work for an environmental company so you know you think this would be a uh something that's talked about a lot and it's certainly mentioned. Um, it's certainly in like all the vision statements and, you know, it's, it, it's given lip service, you know, and it it's only taken seriously in as much as there is a, an opportunity to optimize. So yeah, maybe we can, you know, reduce our CO2 f- footprint, um, but we're going to make money doing it. Yeah. yeah that, that's really that mass extinction. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always I shouldn't have laughed at that. I, I'm sorry. It was always, it's like the kind of um, uh, corporate culture idea that like choosing not apocalypse is like a consumer decision. Like you're in a, you're in a grocery store and you have like fiery death by climate change or not. And it's all just like a matter of which one you pick off the shelf. Like, uh, you know, what, whatever uh, individual choices we make have like some huge difference in this when it's like, was it 70% of the warming in the world is caused by like 10 corporations or something, you know? Um, I mean, I think one interesting thing I was thinking about Jordan's earlier comment about like uh, talking with people about this is one of the things I have noticed, and I haven't been in the classroom for a couple of years now, but over the 15 years that I taught, I did notice, uh, and maybe you guys have had this experience too, a kind of generational shift over time in terms of what students believe in and what they know. And some of it might be related to where I've taught. I'm not totally sure, but like the earliest days of teaching Uh, And I taught at places that were like engineering schools and business schools and things. Uh, There was like a real Horatio Alger type of like pro-American enthusiasm wed with like the uh, moral arc of the universe type of progressivism, right? It was very much like everyone's going to be less racist in the future. And I will also make a lot of money because that's like a good thing, right? It was like a very like Northeastern view of the, the world. And then my students much more recently have been... I don't want to say like cynical because I don't think they're cynical at all, but they've been much more, I think, realistic about what we face. Like Horatio Alger is like totally dead in their minds, which I find to be refreshing. Like finally my students are like as weird as I always was. Uh, I think they face, they face the full brunt of this in a way that people our age don't even, don't even face. But that's been a really fascinating kind of shift uh, that I've seen over the past 10, 15 years. Yeah. Well, to the extent that I can be considered an antinatalist, that's really the basis of of my antinatalism. <laughs> you know, it was really, pro- you know, before Cameron was born, uh, you know, I really struggled with that. I was like, is this a moral choice? Yeah. 
it's extra horrifying if you I mean, i've got a son and like i know it's it's uh and i know you guys both have kids and it is it's like a it's like a tough thing to think about and you do the math of like how old like what years are going to be when your kid is uh you know x years old or whatever and you think what the you know like what the hell is 2065 gonna look like or something right yeah it's hard to imagine you know yeah it is i'm amazed sometimes in 2023 how like uh dystopian and weird things seem you know it's always a like i'm like oh remember when our like former game show host president tried a coup and then like the 85 year old who's the current president did this and then like you know we had my i had my computer phone that like spies on me i don't know i mean it just it doesn't it sounds like something from uh philip k dick or whatever sometimes that's true i mean i I, you talked about uh early on ed you talked about vibes and and kind of tone, right? Yeah. When I'm thinking about a lot of religious naturalists or the transcendentalists or a lot of spiritual not, but not religious folks or whatever, there's something about trying to find re-enchantment mm. in a natural world that is undergoing these kinds of transformations, like mm-hmm. these kinds of ecological collapses. Mm-hmm. Like how do you how do you find that that magic, that re-enchantment while the thing is falling apart? Yeah often as a result of behaviors that you're participating in? I think that's the big question, right? And I think sometimes I almost wonder if, uh, you know, we need to think about how do we mourn nature as much as anything else. Whenever I read those kind of anonymous posts or whatever on Reddit where people talk about, I didn't see any butterflies this year, you know, there used to be butterflies in my garden all the time. I think there's a profound sense of loss that we're just not even like grappling with right now with this sort of stuff. Yeah, I was thinking about this earlier, you know, the um, uh, post-industrial painters, you know, they were really into painting pastoral scenes and uh, there's a sort of sense of they're memorializing what's what's lost. I, I In my more self-skeptical moments, I'm like, you know, am I kind of engaged in something similar? That may be the case. Uh, I don't know, but um, it seems like a good option. So Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with it necessarily as an individual choice. I think that's what happens when, as you did in the piece, you write in this this sense that like, okay, we're not going to let this turn into a naive pastoralism. Mm -hmm. We're not going to let this turn into some kind of nostalgia for a more natural way of life Mm -hmm. that never actually really existed. Like all those kinds of caveats, right? If we're not going to do that, if we're going to be real about what's happening in the world, I don't know where else you end up. And that's one of the things, too, it's interesting how the piece originally began, actually, as I was talking about uh, Manhattan Henge, you know, that uh, it's around the solstice when the sun lines up with uh, the uh, with the streets and comes down exactly like between the buildings and this kind of, um, you know, majestic, beautiful thing. And, And I wanted to give this kind of appreciation of nature in the midst of this like environment that is normally coded in people's minds as supremely unnatural but of course it's natural right? everything's natural in, in right, what right. happens to mean uh and uh, uh sam did not like that beginning so that got that got cut and manhattan henge i think got like mentioned or i like gestured towards it later to kind of like tip my hat towards it um got this kind of like emotional resonance for a certain pastoralism I appreciate the idea of it, but I think probably like everyone that was one of those pastoral thinkers, like the Impressionist painters or whatever, I'm always like a city boy that is romancing this stuff and has like no experience with it in my own life, right? Like I've never even been camping. So I I think that like, you know, my idea that like I'm gonna live in a cabin on a lake and like, you know, listen to Bon Iver all day or whatever, like my like white guy (laughs) fantasy happens to be. Uh, I do think that Jordan's point is, is really good about how do we think about 
how do we avoid that type of naive pastoralism? And and I love the kind of enchantment of natural spaces in the city to an extent, right? I think psychogeography is a means of kind of paying attention to where you are, looking at nature where it where it happens to be in otherwise uh, environments that aren't thought of as, as natural. I think all of that can be part of a kind of at least personal project with enchanting nature to an extent. A lot of the kind of the, the naive side that we've yeah. been talking about relies on a dualism that that humanity and civilization are entirely separate from the natural world. For right? sure. There's yeah. this rupture, there's this break. Uh, and that's where you end up with the antinatalism and, and the anti-civilization crowd and all the rest. By kind of re reinscribing humanity back into nature, therefore cities are natural, right? Yeah. Um, I mean that, that that's a fascinating way in to what to what you're talking about. And I think too it's interesting because that kind of dualism itself like and she sort of reinscribed some of the same ways of thinking, obviously, that are so problematic. The division between like the sacred and the profane or mind and matter or whatever. I mean, the problems with dualisms that always exist, right? Uh, so I think that um, it's just kind of like a different form of normative Christianity, but it doesn't think that it is, maybe. I don't know where you guys are at, but when I left, you were talking about, what was it, psychogeography? And, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. It's an act of imagination, in some ways. And you start this piece actually with an imaginative exercise, right? Thinking about where you're located writing at the time and where that location was several hundred million years ago, right? And that sense of deep time mm. is as much imagined as it is real. And I think maybe that, to the extent that we can say there's a a bright spot <laughs> in this conversation, it's it's that sense of deep time because I think that the world has a way of enduring and we may not be around, but like I accept humanity's death. It, it has to happen at some point, you know, it's unfortunate. <laughs> I'm, I'm not like cheering it on. I, I don't know. There's something about that sense of deep time that some people get lost in and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, we're, we're so insignificant within the shadow of eternity. But like, I find it kind of, I don't want to say hopeful, but it's almost sublime in the truest sense of the word, right? Like in the kind of the, the romantic sense of that term. And I've always, I'm obsessed with deep time. I'll, I'll like do wiki dives on like geological epochs and things. And like, generally for me, I drive like a sense of uh, wonder from it in this kind of, you know, the fact that this was uh, like a tropical, uh, shallow tropical ocean at one point is like incredible to me, right? I mean, I get kind of a gleeful, 19th century naturalist uh, fascination of thinking about that sort of thing. And, and I think that's where the Whitman bit comes back into it, because one of the things I love with the kind of metaphysic in Leaves of Grass is that kind of like, well, you're going to die, and then like a sprout will grow where your body is buried, and there's a sense of flow or something within the, within the part of the universe, right? Like, if you think that we're very, very small, and the universe is very, very big, maybe that's only disturbing to go back to the, the point that Jordan was making earlier, uh, if we think of ourselves as divided from the universe. But if you think of yourself as part of the universe, then you're no longer, you know, just really, really small in contrast to the very big universe. You're part of the very big universe. And I think that that has like a different uh, experience or perspective to it that can be enchanting, that can be powerful, that can be beautiful. I, I don't know what the possible political upshot of something like that is, but I think, you know, existentially, at least it uh, has some value. Yeah, it makes me feel better sometimes. <laughs> Like <laughs> the best, the best we can hope for. Sometimes, you know. Maybe that's it. Maybe there's a maybe the political upshot is pushing aside despair. Yeah, I think there's something uh, to that, and 
yeah, again, reintroducing things like joy and uh, love into our relationships. I mean, it sounds kind of fluffy and um, no, I like think bullshitty, but I, I actually think it's actually potentially pretty radical. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I entirely agree with you. I think I think like a hopeful politics, like a genuinely hopeful politics and not like a Shepard Fairley hopeful politics would be a, a would be something that would be helpful, right? But I also mean, but also guns. Yeah. Yes. Who right, Jordan. Just say there, I mean, there's a real debate about it in the literature. Is hope a better motivator than despair? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's there. It's not a foregone conclusion. And there are really good arguments on, on both sides about yeah. Like if if what you have is a hopeful worldview, you're going to be less inclined to take radical action when necessary. Uh, if you feel like yeah. everything's on the line and you're likely to lose, you might actually take the steps necessary. Well, see, and this is why I have a lot of respect for people on the right who are completely wrong, you know, like from an epistemological point of view or like, you know, their their analysis is completely wrong, but they're they're willing to take action. I kind of respect that. Like the idiots who thought the election was stolen, you they know, put their balls on the wall. Right? They were like, they were, you know, they're, you know, credit where credit is due. They were fighting yeah. for, for what they thought was um, yeah. tyranny or whatever. But I don't know. It's, it's, I guess it's hard to have this conversation apart from these other kind of more abstract. Well, I mean, um, that that's why I brought up radical environmentalist direct action earlier. Mm -hmm. It was precisely on this point. Like these are people who are putting their lives on the line, right? Trying to do something about this. Right. Point taken. I think that uh, maybe when, you know, when Matthew was talking about like introducing love into politics, though, I mean, that's a helpful way of squaring the difference between hope and despair as well, right? Because I mean, love as a concept doesn't necessarily uh, imply or exclude either hope or despair. Um, I think that there's something very radical with that idea of kind of a politics of love or politics of empathy and human connection in some in some kind of way, right? Solidarity. Think, yeah, exa yes, exactly. Solidarity. Yep, 100%. I think Jordan, your point about hope is very well taken as well. That like I, I think if anything, what you sometimes see among mainstream liberals as opposed to people who are further along on the left is a kind of hopefulness about the things that we face where it's like, well, someone will figure it out, right? Like it's a type of messianic uh, you know, well, we'll elect the right person. And then they'll appoint the right people to the Supreme Court and everything will be fine, right? And that's a that's a great way of not embracing solidarity because you're not responsible for anything in that in that kind of way, right? Yeah. And the hope is that everything will stay the same. It'll just get a little bit better. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. stave off the worst. So yeah. All right. Well, that was fun. I appreciated the uh conversation. Do you want to talk about any of the things you're you're working on currently? Yeah. I do have a bunch of irons in the fire. You're busy boy. Sure. I have like a crazy number of, uh, cause I've got a clear addiction, <laughs> um, but uh, so I've got a couple books that are, uh, that are coming out uh, and I've got a couple books that I'm writing right now. So I think it's in August. Uh, I have a book called heaven, hell and paradise lost coming out. And that's part of uh, Ig publishing's bookmarked series. So it's kind of a like memoir of my reading of Milton over the years. Uh, and it was a total blast to write. It was a lot of fun. You don't have to even like Milton, I think, to hopefully enjoy the book. I have uh, uh, the follow-up to Pandemonium, the demon book coming out. It's called Elysium, an illustrated history of angelology. Uh, and that is coming out uh, in October. Uh, and then uh, I did an entry for um, the object study series published by Bloomsbury Academic. Uh, and it's on Relic. So it's like the second one that they, if you're not familiar, it's a great series. They normally have somebody write about like one 
object, right? Like somebody will write skateboard or whatever, and it'll be like a cultural history of that or, or you know, elevators or, or what have you. Uh, and they've had shockingly few on religious subjects. Somebody did a, a very good book on the veil um, and that's it. So relic is like the only the second one that's ever about a religious subject. Uh, and then uh, I'm writing the sins and salvation book thing for Abrams. Uh, I'm doing another Pittsburgh book, uh, and I'm doing a history of the Faust legend for Melville House. That's so, yeah, a lot of lot of stuff coming out. Nice on the docket, yeah. Well, they're all opportunities to have you um, back on, but yeah, I'd be happy to talk about any of them. Thanks, guys, Jordan. It was really good to see you, man. You too. Let's do it again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. And Jordan, I, I, well, I have to hit you up for coffee when I'm in Rhode Island next. Sounds good. I'll uh, I'll bring Ryan Marnane along as well. All right, sounds good. All right, bye guys. See you. See you. Bye.